Morning, church. Morning. My passport, my passport expired last year, uh, if you wanted to know. <laughs> it had been, uh, it was kind of disappointing. It, I haven't used it. I, now I need to find an excuse to renew it. So uh, I'm going to get on that. Uh, the last time I had used it was on a trip uh, I led to the Dominican Republic with a church I was at before. Uh, uh, high school students we took down there. Phil was there. Phil, Phil uh, helped lead the group as well. Uh, we considered retiring there at that moment. Uh, we thought about just staying and, uh, and cashing, liquidating all of our assets, which at that time were pretty profound, being that we were early 20s. Uh, so <laughs> I have a lot of memories from, from that trip. If you've never heard my story about the Dominican prison, that's a great story, but I'm not going to tell you that one this morning. Uh, I have a different story. While we were there, we were doing a number of different things, some construction stuff, uh, working primarily in a, in a slum in the Dominican there. And one day we had finished with a VBS that we were doing, and I think we were waiting for the construction crew to finish so that we could all ride back to the compound where our base, which was literally a compound guarded by armed men. Uh, we discovered that one night when we stayed out too late. Uh, we, <laughs> that's another story. Uh, we were waiting for the construction crew to get done, and we're standing there on the dirt path that doubles as a road, uh, waiting to get picked up. And as we're standing there waiting, there was a woman who lived, an elderly woman who lived in a hut across the, the path from the field where we're doing VBS with this slum. This elderly woman invite us, invited us into her hut. Uh, and there was one of our students with us who spoke a little bit of Spanish, high school Spanish. Uh, so she was able to roughly translate, which was better than I was doing. So she was able to roughly, tra- roughly translate. And so she just wanted to invite us into our into our home. And so we went in to her to her home. And I I have vivid memories of her home, going walking in through kind of the the plywood that had been pieced together that was her door into this shack that was about 10 by 12. It was on the corner uh, by the dirt path, and it was made dominantly out of corrugated metal, uh, both the walls and the roof. And once you got inside, you could see the framing, and there was some lumber, there were some sticks, there was some rebar, some metal, kind of holding this thing together that was her home. And I remember being inside of it and looking around, and there was a place where she slept, and there was a small place where she had a wood fire that she would cook over. And there was no electricity, so standing in this shack, the only light that we had was the light that came in through the cracks and holes in the walls and the ceilings. And there, I, I remember the odor. It wasn't a smell. Well, it was a smell. It was one of our senses. But it, was, it wasn't a, a bad odor, but it had a very distinct odor, the smell of, of dirt and sweat and heat kind of all combined. I just remember being in this place. And what she wanted was for us to just come into her home and pray with her. So we did. We came in and we prayed with her, and, and then it was time for us to go. And I've, the reason I share this story is because I, it's been on my mind a lot recently with what's been happening in Haiti. Because there's been a lot of discussion about Haiti and the terrible circumstances that are existing now after the earthquakes and 
the circumstances that were true in Haiti before the earthquakes. And now how does Haiti move forward? And there's been a lot of comparison between Haiti and the Dominican Republic because they share the same island. And the comparison between the economics and the politics of Haiti and that of the Dominican Republic because the Dominican Republic is the success story. So a lot of people are looking at the two and saying, how do we help Haiti become more like the Dominican Republic? And the reason that this woman comes to mind and and this experience of going there comes to mind for me is because even though the Dominican is, is the success story, there is incredible poverty and brokenness in the Dominican. And I've experienced, I've been in it, I've smelled it. I have felt it there. And it's an interesting contrast that even in the success, even when you can point at a place and say, this is what we're hoping for, there's still incredible brokenness. We live in the the country that is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, the most powerful nation in the history of the world. But we can look around and we can go to parts of our country and say, in the midst of all this success, there is incredible brokenness and poverty in areas of our country. We can go to our metropolitan area. We live in a, in a very good metropolitan area, even within the United States. We have some of the, the premier corporations in the world are based here. We have some of the highest level of education that there is anywhere is here. And you can go to parts of our city where there is incredible poverty and incredible brokenness. So this has all been turning over in my mind as we've been looking at Haiti and at the Dominican and, and as, I've been, as we've been moving toward this series and talking about poverty and talking about the brokenness that we encounter and what does it mean for us to be wrecked. Because that's what we've been moving for. This series title is our goal. That as a leadership team, as Chris and I and as we have the team from Mexico come up and share... Our goal is to wreck you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Because we believe that God wants to change and transform us. We believe that God wants to change us so deeply that the best word to describe it is wrecked. That when we compare who we are now compared to who we were before, that we're changed in such a way that, that you just have to call it wrecked. And that's what we want to, that's our goal. It's, it's a great goal. Uh, but we're going to move forward in this series today with, uh, with, with a, I think it will be a fun conversation, and we've got a special guest with us today. I'll come up in, in just a little bit, and he's going to tell us about some things going on in our city. But first, I want to go to the Scriptures. We're going to look at a prophet. Uh, a prophet, we typically, I think, identify as somebody who tells the future. Right? I, I think a lot of times that's what we identify a prophet with, is an idea of someone who is going to tell us what the future holds. Well, the biblical prophets did that, but the biblical prophets talked about the future in the context of the present. The biblical prophets, when they spoke, it was almost exclusively, there are a few exceptions, but when they spoke about the future, they were almost always doing it in relation to what was happening in the present lives of the Israelites, of the kings, of the people that they were speaking to. They were saying, there are things happening in your life now, the way that you're living now, that is going to affect your future in this way. So if, 
if this future doesn't look good to you, then we have to change the current circumstances that we're in and change the way that we're living now. Okay, uh, let me show you what the narrative of the story looks like. We're going to first go to 2 Kings uh, because this is where the story plays out, the historical record of the story plays out. It's 2 Kings uh, chapter 23 is where I want to look at. 2 Kings 23, 31 is where we're going. It's going to be on screens here, so you can see it there. Uh, I'm taking Hebrew right now, so this should, I should have a better pronunciation of this than I'm going to have, but I'll go with it. Joahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Hamatala, daughter of Jeremiah. I don't believe that this is the same Jeremiah that we're going to look at in just a moment. Just a coincidence, his names overlap. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors, predecessors had done. Pharaoh, Necho, put him in chains at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. He imposed on Jerusalem a levy of a hundred talents of silver, uh, of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Elohim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Elohim's name to Joachim. But he took Joahaz and carried him off to Egypt, where he died. Joachim paid uh, Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to their assessments. I know, I should have just rattled that off for you. This is the historical narrative. This is the story as they record that it played out. These are the people and the places and the things that happened. I just go to this because we're going to look at the way that Jeremiah interprets what happens. Because Jeremiah is linking that this is part of the people's future that's connected to their past by the way that they're living. So we're going to go to Jeremiah Chapter 22, verses 11 through 17, is what we want to look at. So we just saw a king taken from his people by the Egyptian king. We have the Israelite king taken away, and, and he's, it's not going to go well for him when he is taken off in chains to a foreign land. It usually doesn't go well for kings who get taken like that. So he gets taken away, uh, and now the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel are going to set a new king in place, and it continues to go downhill for him. But this is what Jeremiah says about what just happened and why this king was taken away. Starting with verse 11 in 22. For this is what the Lord says about Shalom, also called Joahaz, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him to captivity. He will not see this land again. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his subjects work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? What he did, what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. All went well. 
Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. But your eyes and your heart are set on only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. According to Jeremiah, what it means to know God is to defend the cause of the poor and the needy. We've talked about this a number of times. The Israelites, when they were first taken out of Egypt, when God first rescued them, he called him his people in order that people would know who God was through them. They were supposed to be a representation of God's nature and character. When the rest of the world wanted to know who God was, God wanted them to look at Israel. And that then in Israel they would see who God was. Well, the Israelites put God in a tough spot. (laughs) Because the Israelites started living in ways that didn't reflect God's nature and character. They oppressed the poor. They took advantage of people in lesser stations. They built for them bigger palaces that suited their needs only. And they didn't embody God's nature and character. So God is left in a tough spot. These are the people who are supposed to show everyone who I am, and they're not. What is God to do? Well, ultimately, God gives them the worst timeout ever. Uh, But we're not going to get into that necessarily. But if Jeremiah is right... What it means to know God is to defend the cause of the poor and the needy. And then for us, we have to ask that question. If we claim to know who God is by our experience with Jesus and the Holy Spirit living within us, if we claim that we know God, do we defend the cause of the poor and the needy? And what does that look like for us? Because I don't know about you, but I don't have a castle that I'm filling with silver or outfitting with red fabric. Just not my thing. (laughs) What does this translate to us? And how does this look to us? How uh, How do we defend the cause of the poor and the needy? Well, there are two typical answers that people have. And if you've got the green sheets, these are the two blanks you can fill in. There is betterment and there is development. When it comes to defending the cause of the poor and the needy, there are two things, betterment and development. Betterment is, we could talk about this way, food shelves. That is betterment. It, it immediately helps better someone's life. If someone is hungry, they get food, their life is better, right? A food shelf, uh, an emergency relief. When the, earthquakes happened, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, we immediately, as a congregation, took up collections to send through Covenant World Relief to help better the circumstance and the situation there because there were people who needed their lives immediately bettered. Emergency relief is a betterment. Soup kitchens are a betterment. We, we could go on. You could get the picture of what betterment looks like. Then there's also development. Development is a little bit different. Development is microfinance. If you don't know what microfinance is, I'm not going to go into it all right now because it's a big deal. But microfinance is a development thing. Sponsoring a child is a development thing. When you help fund an education and food and lodging uh, and board for a child, when you do that, you are developing that child over a long period of time so that their life might be different than what it was. That you're doing development. Uh, community investment, education, um, 
these are all things that uh, are development. Parent education is a development. It takes a long time. You're investing in something in the future that might not have immediate uh, payoffs. Now, I want to read this. I, I went down to the Urban Homeworks. I'm going to have John come up in just a minute. Uh, Urban Homeworks is one of the ministries we partner with. And I went down, visited with them a few months ago, something like that. And uh, we're talking, they're like, oh, you need to read this book. They gave me this book by this guy, na- guy named Bob Lupton, who is uh, a guy who moved to urban Atlanta 30 years ago, something like that, uh, a long time ago, specifically to do ministry in, in this area. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a great short book that has a number of things. But he says this, and I want to read what he says about welfare, because uh, welfare is kind of our, our national institution of betterment. We give money to people to help them in the circumstance that they're in. So this is coming from a man who spent decades in an urban area doing ministry, trying to transform lives. This is what he says about the way that we do welfare. Welfare, he defines, he says, it's defined by Webster as this, the state of doing well, especially in respect to good fortune, happiness, well-being, or prosperity. Welfare, such a positive word as as Webster defines it, but its meaning has changed in recent years. It has become despised. It evokes feelings of anger and resentment. It is the generic term for a system that destroys people. Take people who are able and strong. Place them in the wealthiest land on earth. Surround them with unparalleled opportunity. Then pay them not to work, not to strive, not to achieve. Pay them to accept non-productivity as a way of life. Agree to subsidize their families with food, shelter, health care, and money if their fathers will leave. Do this for two or three generations and see what you produce. You will have a people who are unmotivated and dependent, whose hopes and dreams rise no higher than their subsidies, a people who have lost the worth work ethic, who have learned that others will take responsibility for them and who will therefore assert little discipline or control over their own lives. You will have emasculated their men, making them expendable and unnecessary in their family's existence." You will have created a generation of prideless, fatherless youth who believe that receiving and taking is better than working and investing. And when you have seen the hope disappear from the eyes of the lung, you can be sure you have developed an effective formula for the destruction of a people. We call it welfare. Have to let that sit for a moment, don't you? That is powerful words. As a church... We believe that God has called us to make a difference. We believe that God needs to be made known through what we do and how we do it. So when we're asked this question by Jeremiah, what does it mean to defend the cause of the poor and the needy? We need to think long term. We need to think beyond the immediate response We need to respond immediately, but we need to think beyond that. Just throwing money at a problem doesn't solve it. There is long-term investment that needs to happen, long-term commitment to a group of people and a community of people to transform their lives. I want to invite John up now. John is with Urban Homeworks. Urban Homeworks is one of the the ministries that we're partnering with. Uh, We're going there on Saturday. Plug. Uh, to work with them, and I've asked John to come and share a little bit about what Urban Homeworks, a little bit, a lot, 
about what Urban Homeworks does uh, and how we can work with them. So first, tell us about you. Um, John Lumberg, yeah, uh, I'm the volunteer manager at Urban Homeworks. So I work with our partner churches, businesses, schools, uh, universities that, to get them out on site and then supervise them on site to get the construction. Well, specifically, we work in housing, if that wasn't apparently clear. Uh, working, doing everything from demolition, uh, which most people really, really love. We did it last time. It was a blast. <laughs> I get to go wreck stuff? Awesome. <laughs> we had an eight-foot iron pike. We got to... <laughs> you get to wreck some things. Like yeah, that. that was good. Um, but we also have a rental housing, too, that uh, we need to turn it over. When, it, when a family moves out, depending on how long they've been there, um, anybody that has children knows that they can be harsh on their environment from time to time. <laughs> so it needs a, a good clean, a fresh coat of paint. Some of them need a little remodels. So I supervise that and then maintain those relationships. Give us a brief history of Urban Homeworks itself. Where, when did it start? What is the background of Urban Homeworks? We've been around since 1995. Uh, essentially, it got started by a youth pastor in South Minneapolis that saw a duplex across the street from his church that was contributing um, to most of the negative things in his neighborhood. There were tricks getting turned out of it. There was uh, some drug dealers living in it, even though it was abandoned. Um, and so he, that's a relative term. Yes. Um, there is, uh, I've got a couple abandoned houses on my block, too. really busy. Um, and uh, he saw that it was contributing to the overall degradation of the community, found the landlord, tracked him down. Landlord said, I, I haven't been down there in two years. I'm afraid to go down there. Do you want it? And so he went up to that head pastor at the time and said, hey, we're landowners. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Chris, we have to talk after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so they remodeled it with the youth group, which our construction standards have since improved. <laughs> but uh, from there, Nothing against teenagers. Yeah, against teenagers, just the architectural and structural things. We, they took out some walls that should still be there that we ended up putting back in. Um, that's what I mean by standards. Uh, I'd like them to stay up, not implode. But, uh, and since, so we, we started getting into rental housing, have... have over the course of time developed, but like a lot of movements of God, it started with someone and a church, a mm -hmm. congregation saying, this is a need. We need to meet this need. Now there's a family, we got this thing, we fixed it up, now there's a family in our congregation that needs an affordable place to live. And so, boom, here we go. And we've got a couple of interns, oh, we should put them in the upper unit of the duplex. And boom, the Urban Homeworks rental model. Came out. Beautiful so we've thing. been around for 15 years, um, and just from a historical perspective, we, we, we for the last decade and a half, we've done about five to seven units of housing per year. In the next three years, we'll get into the reasons why this is in a little bit, but we're, we're somewhere around 80. Um, That's a lot more. <laughs> uh, tell, us, tell us about, you guys work in Minneapolis almost exclusively. Tell us about the need and opportunity with Minneapolis. You guys just had the city yeah. turn up um, kind of big for you. It's uh, A lot of people have asked us because we're starting to receive some public dollars. Well, is the city, is the government, and all this money that's coming in, are they calling into question your faith statement? Or are you not allowed? Honestly, uh, it is an incredible time right now for the Church of Jesus Christ, for the body of Christ. 
because the schools are throwing the doors wide open. The prisons are throwing the doors wide open. The city, with regard to housing, are throwing the doors open and saying, whoever can do something, please come do it. Mm -hmm. And Urban Homeworks had, happened to be sitting at the table and said, we would like to do something. <laughs> and, and we have since, over the course of our, the last few years, the, the building the relationship with the city, proven ourselves to them that our sustainable model will work. And so they're, they're pumping money. And so it, just, again, for you guys may have heard of this housing crisis that's been going on, foreclosure. It's been in the news. Um, North Minneapolis specifically, where our office is, within one square mile of our office, half lie half of all of the foreclosures in the Minneapolis and St. Paul metropolitan area. Half of them were within a square mile. When you look at you can go on the city and Hennepin County's website, too, and you can see the foreclosure map over the last four years. And there's lots of dots everywhere. North Minneapolis is a giant black dot. So quite literally, the problem is out of control. Now, 70% of those properties were not owner-occupied, meaning they were owned by large investment corporations, landlords, some of which had good intentions, just got it over their head and a significant amount of slumlords. And that means that to me, I live in North Minneapolis, I live in that area three blocks from our office, and that means my neighborhood, the direction of my neighborhood is not being determined by the people who live in my neighborhood. And people who don't live in my neighborhood don't care as much about my neighborhood. And so if my direction is being determined by somebody else who doesn't necessarily care, you, well, I, I shouldn't re be required to elaborate yeah. on that. It's, well, there's one yeah. story that you shared about a woman who uh, at a church meeting had shared about she had been evicted three times yeah. because... there's actually a woman living in our housing um, who, and, and this is, again, when we're talking about justice, the, the, the cause of the poor, defending the needy, there's a woman that came to us wanting a, a place to rent, she'd been evicted from three apartments, three buildings, within six months because they went into foreclosure. Meaning every single landlord she went to and gave them her de damage deposit and first month's rent knew they were going into foreclosure because the foreclosure process takes a year. They knew it and they still kept taking all of her money. And, and one of the we, we talk about physical redemption of the houses, the demolition of the painting and all this thing. But there is a spiritual and emotional component to the redemption that needs to be done because of the amount of damage inflicted on human beings by distrust and by people taking advantage of other people. Uh, it's the premise of injustice is believing a lie, mm -hmm. that I am worth more than you. That's what allows me, over the course of history, that is what allowed one people to oppress another people. I'm better than you. And so what happens to my family is more important than what happens to your family. And that's sort of the, the, mm -hmm. the premise we're going at this housing thing. Yeah. Too. So explain how it is that a rental, your rental model works. Um, so our, our rental units are, and our, our rental model is multi-unit. Anything multi-unit that we get goes into our property management piece. Um, we also do a home ownership we we'll talk about in a second. It's the other piece, and that's all single family. But the multi-unit, what we'll do is we'll, we'll get families, and we actually have a, a huge waiting list right now. 
Um, and so we're working on something like 60 more rental units over the course of the next three years. And so we're trying to essentially triple or quadruple our capacity. <laughs> Which again, help. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll take in a family. It's the bottom 20% of metro median income is, is the demographic that we serve. A lot of the people are on some type of government assistance, welfare. Um, a lot of them have a Section 8 voucher that helps subsidize their housing. Uh, and I could, you know, toss out all the, the, the stereotypes that everybody has, and some of them are true. Stereotypes are based somewhat in truth, mm -hmm. but there are so many exceptions that we see. We've got a woman living in her housing that works three jobs right now. Uh, right on, if you're familiar with South Minneapolis, right on Hiawatha and East Lake at and mm -hmm. East Lake Street. There's a Target, and there's a Cub, and there's a Rainbow. And she works at Rainbow from about 5 to 11. She works at Cub from noon to 4. And she works at Target from about 4.30 or 5 till 11. And she's got two kids. Um, she has to do that because none of them will hire her full time. Because if they hired her full time, they have to pay her benefits. And, and so she has to have three part-time jobs in order to pay the rent and feed her children. She doesn't have healthcare, um, and, you know, we, can get in, we don't need to get into that subject. Um, but so we will pull them in, and, and we obviously we can't make them, we can't go exclusively to Christians, that's illegal, but we want them to know who we are, and so we give them our mission statement. We exist to perpetuate the hope of Jesus Christ through innovative community development. Uh, we tell them we want you to have this place as a practical way of showing you that God loves you, and so we say we want dignified housing low-income families. We don't want low-income housing because, as you guys know and have probably seen, low-income housing usually means substandard housing. And so dignified housing for low-income families, our standards are such that if I would move my family into this place, why would I expect somebody else to move into it? Uh, and so we, that's how we serve them. We, we don't proselytize, we, we, we don't hand them a gospel track and say, we're your Christian landlord now, call us when you want Jesus. <laughs> we want, when, when, when Timmy shoves a G.I. Joe guy down the toilet, we, want to, we need to go and we need to unplug that toilet and we need to build a relationship with them because many of what we're finding, and even on my block, there are a lot of substandard homes that I now know are owned by Christians. Hmm. And I could start getting into the 40 kids that are on my block and what Jesus has to say about people who put stumbling blocks in front of children. I don't know that I need to repeat what he says, but he has no harsher words for anyone in the Bible than those people who would put a stumbling block in front of kids. And now that I know that there's a Christian that owns some of these things, I, I, it's been reinforced to me that redeeming the name of Christ a little bit is important. Mm -hmm. And so showing them that we by building a relationship with them is a big deal. Yeah. So in the multi-units, you've got these people who come in. Who else do you put in the house? The upper unit, um, we rent to low, our, uh, young adults, young professionals, people who have just come out of college, getting uh, started in their careers, usually single, because uh, there's usually three or four or five bedrooms in these upper units, because we try to finish an attic in the duplex, too. And some of them are college students. We've got some Bethel students. We've got, I think, a couple of Northwestern students, a couple of North Central and St. Thomas and such. Uh, but there, this is to create some, some multi-economic housing, some economic diversity. Because we sort of think it's important to expose 
everybody to everybody else. And, and even from a biblical perspective, it, it, would, it, it became, I graduated from Bethel with a theology degree, thinking I was all big time, and now I know the Bible. I'll set it on the shelf for a little while, because I'm just quoting. And then I moved to West Jackson, Mississippi, where no one looked like me, and no one talked like me, and no one ate like me, and, and that's different. And when you start reading the Bible and understanding Jesus through the eyes of another culture, things blow up. And so that's why we create this intentional diversity within, the community, within these contexts, so that both can be impacted. And usually what we see is the, the young adults that move in here above the families probably end up learning more, taking away more than the families ever do. Because now there's a face to, to poverty. Now there's a relationship. Now I know someone on welfare. And that is powerful. Yeah. They sign a one-year lease. They're required to volunteer three to five hours in the neighborhood doing something with somebody that's already doing something. They're not allowed to start something new. Because too often in my community, too, people will blow in, start something, do something, and then leave. And so there's a very much a distrust with the suburbs. Not because of you wonderful, good-hearted, godly, righteous people, but because, again, there's almost a redemption that needs to be done in Christ's name. When, and even in Bob Lupton's book, he would say some wonderful, wonderful people have done some incredibly damaging things to communities in the name of Christ because they didn't understand the people they were going to. And, and that's exactly why we've, we've talked about building a relationship, not coming down and having an event, but how do, how do we do this sucker in the long term so that we know one another? That, that's, that's when we can mm -hmm. change something. Talk about the, talked about rental. Talk about the home ownership and why that's particularly important yeah. in your neighborhood. Home ownership, and, and you guys know this, uh, this is economics too, home ownership is the bedrock of the community. Um, I own a home in North Minneapolis now, which is why a few minutes ago I got really passionate <laughs> about my block, <laughs> because it's my block. Mm -hmm. Because this little plot of land and my little house, my children play here. This is my sidewalk, this is my, and when cars come whipping up my block at 50 miles an hour, I'm going to throw something at them. Because <laughs> this is my street, people don't do that on my street. When there are illicit activities taking place in homes of slumlords that are down the street on the corner, that affects me. Because this is my block. So homeowners are the bedrock. And we need home ownership to, to develop that pride within the neighborhood and that, and that pride within the community. So we developed this model initially, actually, because the, the urban neighbors that live in the upper part of the duplex there, they wanted to stick around. They fell in love with the neighborhood. They fell in love with the children and the families and the community and what was going on in the city. And they wanted to stay. But they also wanted to buy a house. So we're like, oh, we'll remodel a couple and put people in there. Um, but ultimately now, we needed to provide home ownership for families who wouldn't normally get an opportunity. And so we do it through a land trust program. It's it really complicated, but essentially, what it does for us is it provides perpetual affordability over time. Because if what we want to our what we want to happen to our neighborhoods happens and houses are fixed up and, and families have home ownership and we have availability for the poor to, to, to move in and we have safe, thrivingly thriving communities, ultimately prices are gonna go up. Right? Mm -hmm. The economy. Housing right. costs are gonna go up, 
costs of everything are going to go up, and eventually the poor are going to be weeded out. Because the landlord, existing landlords are going to evict the tenants to bring in somebody that can pay three times the rent now, because it's a desirable neighborhood to live in. Mm -hmm. And eventually the lower income homeowners are going to sell that house for an ignorant amount of profit and move out somewhere else, and that home is not available for a family to buy uh, that's living below a, a certain income level too. And ultimately, again, we want economic diversity. I saw a cool bumper sticker a few weeks or a few months ago. Said everybody does better when everybody does better. <laughs> uh, and, and that's really what we want for our communities. And so we do a land trust program. The family comes in, buys the home. The land trust comes in, buys the land. They sign a lease with the land trust for 99 years, which very few outlive. And then, uh, <laughs> I want to meet that up, lady. Yeah, <laughs> she's now 125, and she's. Um, but what that does is it protects the long-term affordability mm -hmm. by the land trust retaining some interest. They have all the same rights as a normal homeowner, but we give them a house at essentially a 30% discount or so. Brand new, energy efficient, we spray foam all the walls, we put in new windows, new energy efficient appliances, because we don't want them to be paying 800 bucks come January. They are stuff. gorgeous homes. They really, they really are. We actually have an open house on Tuesday and a couple of them are interested. Um, <laughs> but a couple of them that have sold. Not the ones you worked on yet. No. Uh, but then what that does is it says the next time that house sells in one year, in 50 years, 75% of what, of what it's appreciated goes to the land trust. Essentially, the land trust kind of brings that back to the table every time. And 25% goes to the family to take away and do whatever they want. Making the land exponentially more expensive every time the house turns over, making the house exponentially more affordable according to the market. But on paper, it still sells for full market value. So the neighbors are happy, too. The neighbors, it's not dragging down the value of their home. And so it really feeds this economic diversity, mm -hmm. we hope, which is, again, better for everybody. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things that I think can get lost in all the home stuff is the, the people that you work with. And you work with developing people as well yeah. as homes. So share with us yes. about people you develop. Um, you, everybody knows this metaphor, right? If you give a man a fish, they leave for a day. You teach a man to fish, what? What? <laughs> He'll eat for a lifetime. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you said. Yeah, I don't know what that metaphor is. Um, He'll eat for a lifetime. And so there's this aspect of training. In Bob Lupton's word there, you see what the welfare system has done to people over the course of three or four generations by stripping dignity that comes with having a job. The best welfare system is a good job and training people to work. And, and so we work with a, Minneapolis Public Schools in the, their under construction program, which is kind of a work-study program, a work-study option for students. We work with the Goodwill. Most of you guys know the Goodwill, consignment stores and everything. A lot of their profits go to their job training programs and, and their soup kitchens and other things like that. But they are currently, uh, sub, we are subcontracting out to them our whole house that they are building. They just got done building one for us last year with their training program. And we also work with an organization called Tree Trust through a national grant from Youth Build. It's kind of a, a federal program mm -hmm. that funds agencies that provide job training and finishing education training and goal setting for young adults who have dropped out of school. And last year, 97% of the kids that came through the Youth Build program with Tree Trust that worked with urban homeowners, 97% got a GED, 
finished their diploma or went back to school with the intention of finishing. And so what they've got is that education piece. And then, now they've got some skills. We teach them how to frame. That's a big deal. We teach them how, you know, some, some minor repairs, some concrete work. Things that are practical that they can use on their own home, but there's also a, just a general job skills training. Hey, you better be here at 8 o'clock. We're a little more lenient than most uh, places would be, but you've got to be here at 8 o'clock. If you're going to be sick, you've got to call. Because, as it's stated with what most of the kids in these programs grew up without a father. My father, when I turned 14, he's like, guess what? Get a job. <laughs> and I had to go find some. And he, I saw his work ethic. When there's nothing exemplified for you, and when you grow up without that example, it's not a surprise that there's a lack of motivation. It's not a surprise that our, some of the communities that we have around us don't experience that same ethic. And so putting that into them so that when they go... They have job skills, too, not just construction stuff, but going out and they're job ready, helping them with interviewing and that sort of stuff. Because then you've got this teaching them to fish aspect. And then should you go with the pond? Yeah, do the pond. Sweet. 99% of the businesses in my community in North Minneapolis and nationwide in low-income communities are not owned by people who live in, their, in the community in these low-income neighborhoods, 99%. Meaning, most of that money goes somewhere else. Meaning, again, that the fate of my community is often very not, very much not determined by people who live there. So, and it's not that there's not money there. There's millions and millions of dollars spent at these convenience stores and restaurants and, and all of these things, but most of it goes out somewhere else. The statistic is that every year in Minneapolis, in, just in North Minneapolis, again, in that geographic area I was talking about all those foreclosures, $30 million leaves every year because of the lack of ownership and because of things that are not available in my community that people have to go out and get. If Just imagine in a community like North and a one, two square miles, if $30 million stayed, what that would do for economic viability. <laughs> and so we, we talk about this in the context of the pond. This is by part two there. <laughs> Whoever owns the pond tells you how many fish you can have in that whole metaphor. Does that make sense? You teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. What if he doesn't have access to fish? What if there's a fence around the pond? If he doesn't have access to fish, it doesn't matter how good of a fisherman you are, you can't get anything. And so whoever owns the pond ultimately determines the fate of my neighborhood. And so that's why we strive home ownership. we got to own the pond. That's why we, a lot of our subcontractors that we work with, a few of them have hired on some of our trainees that come out of the programs. We have three members of training programs that are on our staff right now because we want them to own the pond eventually. We have two guys that have started their own company in the last two years that are starting to do some handyman stuff around the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But we also, one of, the, one of the big deals is we want to support the people who own the pond and who live in our neighborhoods. And so when we're doing these houses, we got to pull permits for stuff, right? We want to do things legally. We're not going to ask you guys to come down and rewire a whole house. That's just not feasible. The city frowns upon that. <laughs> Imagine that. So we hire local subcontractors, people that, men and women, that live in our neighborhoods to do the concrete work, to do the wiring and the, uh, the, the plumbing and the HVAC stuff. Because ultimately what happens there is we're creating economic viability. That's the stimulus plan right there. 
because we're keeping the dollar circulating in the neighborhood rather than paying somebody and then they take it out somewhere else. There are some awesome contractors that live in Shoreview, I'm sure. Um, but ultimately, they would come out and they would spend their money out here. And when you were living in a community like that, we want to we want to own the pond. And that's why, again, Urban Homeworks wants to retain ownership of all the rental property. Retain some amount of say over what happens with the homeowners. And then work with the local subcontractors. Because we need to own the pond because that is development. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here. Betterment is giving somebody some, some money and some food and all that right away. Development is putting them through a job training program, getting them hired on by a local subcontractor with hopes that eventually they stay in the neighborhood and they start their own electrical company. And then now they're our electrician. And now we're supporting them. And now they're hiring on a trainee because now they can hire on them. And, and so all sorts of different life training mm -hmm. even that goes in that. And the implications are just massive. It's huge. So we're coming out on Saturday. Yep. What are you going to have us do? Um, so this is, this is a big deal now. I, I don't know, you guys, uh, you passed your initial test, whatever, a month and a half yeah. ago. It was good. Destroyed some things. This time, we worked we're going to try and have you build some things. <laughs> We've got a garage going up right behind one of our houses. And this is, again, a story of redemption. Uh, I'm going to tell you about this house. The address is 2515 Irving Avenue North. This is three blocks north of my house, so I have a vested interest, so you better know. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we have a, there was this dream home program that was done by a large investment corporation that built hundreds of the same exact house throughout North Minneapolis. And I'm not talking about like the same architecture. I'm thinking the same house. Same siding, same windows, same porch, same design, same everything. Cheap materials, crappy windows, crappy siding, crappy wood. All of, and it was put together very poorly. We've got our hands on. Sounds like a dream home. Yeah, <laughs> and then sold them for an exorbitant amount of money. Again, we can get into some justice issues that I will restrain myself from talking about. But we have uh, we've we've acquired one of these. And we're turning it into a house that will not look like that. We're restructuring the inside. We pulled all the nasty siding off. We put all new windows in it. We just landscaped it with a huge event that Target came out on Friday. And I, we landscaped the crap out of it. It's awesome. Nice. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> That's your covenant, people. You're good. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so uh, we had a, we had a uh, New Hope Church from New Hope came out yesterday and framed up the walls to, from a, for a garage. And so we need to put the roof trusses on next week. So somebody's, yeah, that's right. Somebody's got to be walking the, uh, walking the line there, putting these things up there, nailing them together. We're going to sheet the roof. We're going to roof it. We're going to uh, start siding it. We've got some finished landscaping to do, some regrading in the backyard. Um, so we got plenty of work. Yep. That should be a big deal. Should be. Good. Can we thank John for coming? Thank you. Yep. So you can sign up right back there by the construction hard hat at the featured table. If you have kids uh, in, the, in the kids' area, you might want to go grab them right now. We're going to close with the worship, so I'm going to invite the worship team up. And, uh, and let me, they're going to do a song um, that is straight, up, straight out of Isaiah uh, 1, 1 through 10, or 10 through 20. Chris read it last week, so I won't. But in the song, uh, 
God is calling his people um, to re-examine themselves. And God is calling them to, uh, I want to get the language right. Uh, he's call, he calls them to reason with him. The song puts it, God calls them to argue it out with him. So as we do this song and as we sing, when it comes to compassion, when it comes to justice, when it comes to defending the cause of the poor and the needy, God is calling us to reason it out with him, to have a conversation with him of how is it that we're responding to him. So let me pray. I'll invite the, the ushers forward. They're going to receive uh, offering as we present that. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, that you have challenged us, that you have given us the opportunity to partner with us, uh, that you've given us the opportunity to partner with you in making a difference in the world that we live in. God, we thank you for what Urban Homeworks is doing and the opportunity to come alongside them and to show that neighborhood who Jesus is is and what God looks like. God, we pray that you would continue to help us uh, as we seek you and, and, and pursue your purposes for us as a congregation of what it looks like to defend the cause of the poor and the needy. Lord, help us to see what that means. God, we thank you for, uh, for what you've said to us this morning. Amen.